Okay, good morning everybody again. It's great to be with you. And uh, I want to uh, speak this morning from uh, Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 to 14. So first I'll just read those verses, verses you may be familiar with. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, if you read through the context of this, in the first part of the chapter, Paul has given basically the story of his life. And the story of his life was, when he found Christ, he set everything else aside, all the advantages he had because he was very privileged uh, socially, religiously, financially, that he set everything aside, counting it of no value compared with the gain of knowing Jesus. And he sums all of that up as saying, I want to know Christ in his resurrection and in his sufferings, and so reach the resurrection of the dead. That the, sets the stage for these uh, three verses <clears throat> excuse me, that I've read. And I think these three verses take us right into the heart of a man who was sold out for God, and they show us how he walked with Jesus. And Paul uses the language of the ancient Olympics, as we'll see, to tell us how he intends to win the race and take the prize. And we've all been reminded, I think, this week of our own mortality. Uh, no one lives forever. We all have to face uh, the fact that one day our life will come to an end. And so in the meantime, how can we live, if we're Christians, how can we live for Christ? How can we take advantage of every minute, of every hour, of every day that we have to live for Christ so that when we reach the end, we'll receive the reward in the way that Paul portrays it in these verses? I'll get to that. But he starts with this. I'm just going to go through it bit by bit. He says, not that I've already grasped or already become perfect. It doesn't actually say or Paul doesn't actually say what it is that he's not already grasped, but the meaning of the word grasp is to comprehend mentally or spiritually. And so the context helps us because he's just talked about knowing Christ. I want to know Christ uh, and the power of his resurrection. So it's knowing Christ is what he's not yet fully grasped. Um, to comprehend spiritually, uh, is an experiential, it's not just intellectual knowledge. We can know who Christ is, he's the Son of God, and so on. But Paul's talking here more deeply of an experiential knowledge. Our knowledge of the faith as Christians is never just intellectual. If it is, it won't uh, carry us the distance when things challenge us. We need to have an experiential knowledge of Christ. And uh, so when he says, I've not yet comprehended or grasped the meaning of who Christ is fully, he's really saying, I don't yet know Christ fully on a personal basis. 
And uh, Paul himself, as we know, had a very deep knowledge of Christ, but even he realizes that he's on a journey into an ever deeper knowledge. And so that's reinforced by the second statement, which is, neither if I become perfect. Now, the word perfect means mature. It speaks of a moral and spiritual maturity which can only come from a perfect total union with Christ. And that is something that we won't experience until we meet the Lord face to face. But in the meantime, Paul certainly does know Christ, and we know Christ. But Paul certainly does because, according to the previous verses, this knowledge of Christ has completely changed his life. It's caused him to throw away all of the advantages that he had to risk everything for a very uncertain future, which brought him into a lifetime full of persecution and danger and eventual uh, martyrdom for his faith, according to church history. So he does know Christ, and yet, and, and this knowledge is real, even if it isn't complete, and even if he's still on a journey. And all of us are on a journey, and we can be in, encouraged in that. You know, don't, Paul's just talking about his own journey here. He's not, he's not saying, in the, he doesn't sort of stop to say, well now, uh, Peter, or Barnabas, or Silas, or any one of these others, um, that he was working with, he doesn't say, well, I'm, uh, you know, a little bit further along than they are. Or he doesn't even say, well, I'm not quite as far along as they are. He's not interested in their journey. He's accountable for his own life and his own journey. So we're all on a journey. Don't look around and judge yourself by where somebody else is at. We'll come to that a little bit more in a minute. But just focus on Christ, not on the other person, or where they are or aren't at. So he does know Christ. This knowledge of Christ has changed his life. Everything that was important to him, he now says is garbage. What he once despised is now everything. It's, he's at a total reversal in life. When we become Christians, it's a total reversal of all of our values, or it should be. We're not just people who have a certain religious belief tacked on to, you know, uh, the values of this culture. We're countercultural. Christianity is always at its strongest when it's countercultural. And it doesn't mean that we're, we're against everything in our culture. It just means that there are many things in our culture which are not Christ-like, and we're called to follow Christ whether that offends people or not. <clears throat> Obviously, we don't want to offend people unnecessarily, but uh, we are called to be countercultural. And so, uh, all that Paul once was, all that was once important to him that made him fit in with the mainline religious establishment, now he's thrown away. And the central point is knowing Christ. Everything else is secondary. So what this teaches us is that our lives are to be built around and measured by two things. It's very simple. What we already have in Christ and what we don't yet possess. I'm not, I'm not talking about comparison with somebody else. I'm just saying your life and mine are to be measured by what you or I already have in Christ and what I do not yet have. Everything else is secondary. Spiritual progress is measurable. That's not legalism because you can't me measure spiritual progress by you know how many times somebody goes to church or whether they 
have this outward action or other. It's a matter of the heart. But it's nevertheless measurable in the sense that we should be different people, living differently, thinking differently, acting differently than we were, say, five years ago. If there's no progress in our walk with Christ, there's something that's wrong. Now, I mean, God is very gracious. He doesn't hold a big stick over us. But the fact is that when we don't move forward in Christ and know Him more deeply, really, that's the best possible way we've got of shooting ourselves in the foot as far as, you know, how well our life will go. But uh, we should be able to look back. And again, it's not comparing to somebody else. But we should be able to look back in our own life and say, hey, I'm further ahead than I was. How do you measure that? It's you have a crisis in your life or you have a cause of anxiety or care in your life or you have an issue that you're struggling with. Maybe you're still struggling with it, but you're struggling with it less than you did a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. You, you've you've uh, progressed and you've seen the grace of God and he's helping you because he helps all of us in our weakness. His strength is only ever made perfect in one place, and that's our weakness. And so God helps us, but he does help us, and he does change us. So by the Spirit of God, we should be able to look at where we've got to and look at where we're lacking. And if you're smart, you will listen to discerning and wise people in the body of Christ around you who will help us in that journey. That's one of the reasons being in Christian fellowship is so important, that God never called us to live a solo life. We live in a very, we forget, that we live in a very individualistic culture. We live in a hyper-individualistic culture. And Christianity is not an individualistic faith. And you say, well, wait a minute, I thought, you know, it, my Christ is my personal Savior. Yes, He is your Savior, but He saved you into His body. And so we are uh, gathered together in the body of Christ, whether you're in a small church plant like this, or whether you're in a big church, or wherever you are, we're part of the body. And that's so important for any number of reasons to be connected, to give us perspective, to have people who will correct us, to have people who will encourage us, and we're not just in our own. So, not that I've already grasped or already been made perfect. Then he continues, but I press on in order that I may lay hold, because I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. This word press on is a, is a word used in uh, athletics. It's a runner running a race. We were driving along Herb Street, coming into Kitchener, and in the distance we saw a bunch of people running uh, a race, or at least running on a morning jog, or a running club, or something like that. It's a running athletic, running metaphor. And so I press on. I'm running a race. So this is the first hint we have here that he's talking about a race. And it's a single-minded pursuit. Uh, uh, the pursuit, if you're running a race, you're, you're hoping uh, to win it. it. At least it would be nice if you win it. You, you don't enter a race just to lose it. Or, or let's put it this way. You don't enter a race with the hope that you'll come last. You know, at least second last will be better than last. So there's some measure of victory that we hope for when we enter a race. So that's, and, and it's in the Greek present tense. And the significance of that is it's an ongoing activity. It's something that's not just, you know, uh, well, I'm going to press on today. No, it's an, 
It's not, I'm pressing on and on and on and on. It's the same uh, verb where Jesus talks about prayer, ask, seek, and knock. It's in the present tense. There is a different tense in Greek, which, which is just knock once, or ask once, or seek once. But Jesus says, ask and ask and ask, and seek and seek and seek, and knock and knock and knock. I always find that knocking to be a helpful <clears throat> example because you can picture yourself knocking on a door, nobody letting you in, and then you keep on knocking and your knuckles are getting a little bit sore, and then you keep on knocking and eventually they're bleeding, but you just keep on knocking. That's prayer. We, we have this, because we not only live in an individualistic society, but we live in an instantaneous society, we don't even want to knock anymore. We want to wave our hand over the electronic gizmo that opens the door automatically. And if it doesn't, we're frustrated. And we turn around and give up. Well, that's not what prayer is about, and that's not what the Christian life is about. So I'm pressing on and on and on. So he's realizing, um, as I've said, he's not yet reached the goal. The goal is to know Christ fully. So what is his response? I'm going to press on to, to know him more. I want to lay hold of him. In, in, I want to lay hold of that knowledge of Christ. Because, he continues, I also was laid hold of by him. The word means arrested. I remember preaching in England in a, a, a group of ex-convicts and prostitutes that had come to Christ. And it was an absolutely amazing experience. Elaine and I have been in this group a number of times. They're an extraordinary ministry. And uh, you never know who's sitting beside you, you know. They might just have got out of prison. They might be a, a church janitor, was an ex-murderer, I mean, or was a murderer, convicted of murder. So, you know, it's just the grace of God is manifest in this place, and people are worshiping God. They're so grateful because God has met them, and Jesus has set them free. And it's a great manifestation of the grace of God to be with those folk. But uh, I preached... When I was preaching in this text, I pointed out that the word meant to arrest. They could all relate to that. They'd all been arrested at least once. So I press on in order that I may lay hold because I was arrested by Christ Jesus. See, have you been arrested by Christ Jesus? Do you have a casual relationship with him? Have you heard about him? Are you just tagging along because, you know, a family member is a Christian or a friend or something like that? Or have you been arrested by him? If you've been arrested by him, then... That's going to change your whole life. And that's what God wants. I'm pressing on because he first laid hold of me. That's the grace of God. He's probably thinking, but Bible scholars think he's probably thinking of the actual laying hold of Paul that occurred on the Damascus Road where he was arrested by Christ and knocked off his donkey and blinded and his, 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 his life was completely changed. And, of course, it's only because Jesus laid hold of us that we can lay hold of him. That's the comfort we have in the grace of God. It's not all about us. It's because of what he's done for us. That's, that's amazing grace in action. But, uh, but it's not cheap grace. Grace is, is free, but it's not cheap. It costs Jesus' life to save us. Because he's laid hold of us, we have no choice but to lay hold of him. That's the other part of it. Once you're arrested by Christ, we must follow him. So, what's the nature of our discipleship this morning? I know we're all a work in progress, and don't look to the next person and compare. Just look at your own heart. 
What's the nature of your discipleship? You, are you living this morning as if Jesus has arrested you and changed your life? Or are you just having a religious experience where you put a couple of plaques up in your fridge and feel good because you've got some worship music going on in the background? All that is wonderful, but that's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is your life been changed because you've been arrested by Christ. So, next phrase Brothers, I don't reckon, brothers, of course, include sisters, brothers and sisters, I do not reckon that I fully laid hold. The word reckon is a word borrowed from accountancy. I think it might still be used in a financial sense. Uh, you reckon your profit and loss or whatever. And so the word means to calculate precisely. Paul knew he was on a journey. If you, if you have a church and a, a proper accountant is your treasurer, let me tell you, they can be a pain in the backside. So forgive me for any accountants that may be here, but they're very precise people, and they don't like, you know, loose ends, and they're great people to have around. But this is a word borrowed from accountancy. It means to calculate precisely. Paul knew he was on a journey. Like I said, he's, he's made some progress, but he knows he still has ground to cover. So his solution in the meantime is to do what an accountant would do. Uh, he takes a reckoning. In other words, he takes an inventory. I had a friend who is a businessman. He owned a big hardware store. And the inventory taking was the nightmare of the year. First of all, he had to close down for a day or two so he didn't make any money. And then imagine, you know, calculating how many nuts and bolts and screws and all the rest of it you have. But he, you have to do it if your business is going to be healthy. And if your spiritual life is going to be healthy, it, it's important every so often to take spiritual inventory. What's going on in my life? Where, where are things going well? Where are things not going well? If you're really smart, you'll bring somebody else in and ask them to walk with you and help you in it. Because it will bring the truth out into the light and it will throw us back onto the grace of God to help us move on in our pursuit of winning the prize. Getting married is a great way of bringing accountability into your life. I speak from personal experience. And sometimes we don't like what, you know, our spouse has to say, but if we're smart, we listen. Take inventory. Brothers, I don't reckon that I fully laid hold. But, now here we're coming to the key. What, but, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and stretching out to what lies ahead. Now, when we realize we're not where we would like to be, that can be discouraging, can't it? We can feel, huh, you know, I, I'm just going to give up. We become immobilized. We stop running the race. That's not good. That's not, that's not what we want to do. When I used to run, which I should do, I still do occasionally at the gym, but I used to do quite a bit, I was persistent enough that even if I got really winded or hot or whatever, I would just keep going. I wouldn't just stop and give up. And Paul, he, he wanted to win the race. If you want to win, win, win the race, I'll get it right sooner or later, you've got to keep on running or else you won't get to the finish line. We can all understand that. So Paul had, what was his strategy in terms of finishing the race well? His strategy here is two things. It's I'm going to forget what lies behind and I'm going to stretch out to what lies ahead. Now the first point deals with the past. And we can be uh, burdened by our past failures, can't we? They can, they can just sit on us 
to the point where we get immobilized and can't um, move forward at all. So Paul says, no, I'm going to forget about the past. Or, you know, we can rest on our past laurels and our past successes. And he's not going to do that either. He says, I'm forgetting what lies behind. People who live in in the past, whether it's their past failures or their past successes, that is not going to do anything for your present walk with God or what you're going to do in the future. So what is the positive side of this was I'm going to forget what lies behind, but I'm going to stretch out to what lies ahead. And this word is a, it's called a Greek compound participle. I know that everybody's standing up in your chair and cheering at this point. That's such a revelation. Very exciting. But uh, it, 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 it means in, in Greek, it's the same in German, you, keep, you can add bits to words which make them stronger. And so this is, and a compound participle is when you add two bits or prepositions to a verb to make it really, really strong. So this, this is the, the force of this word. And what it actually means is, thinking, remember he's talking about the race here. I press on. He's, and they would know he's talking about a runner running a race. Paul was interested in athletics. He talked about wrestling and so on and uh, boxing and running and and. So he says, I'm stretching out. It's a picture drawn from the Olympic races where the runner, as he's approaching the finish line, is stretching his body out just like that, as far as he possibly can. That's why the verb is so strong. Stretching out right to the point of almost being horizontal. And of course, the goal of that is you get your nose ahead of the next guy in crossing the finish line and you win the race. And of course, that sheds some light on forgetting what lies behind because there's a few famous stories about people who've lost races because they looked around to see where the next person was. And then while they were doing that, the next person overtook them. He says, I'm not going to look back. I'm running running the race. I'm stretching my body out. I have my absolute full attention on the end of the race. All of our life, we should be oriented and focused on the end of the race. It brings everything else into into perspective. All of our energy is concentrated on that one thing. And uh, we're active participants. We run to win. And in the athletic world, obviously, the only one that gets the prize is the one who comes first. But in a Christian sense, we can all cross the finish line and win the prize. We'll see that in a minute. So it's a powerful illustration. Many can run the race and win the prize. Uh, Grace is wonderful, but the purpose of grace is change. It is to give us energy. Grace is not a theological concept. It is a theological concept, but it's more than that, far more than that. Grace is the divine energy. It's a divine empowering which comes upon you and fills you by the power of the Spirit and pushes you forward and enables you to go where you can't go. I think maybe when I was here before, I talked about the time I was so discouraged I could barely get down the driveway putting the garbage out. And somehow the grace of God came upon me and I made it. And sometimes it's just in small steps. There's nothing spectacular. Sometimes it's just, I'm just surviving. But at least you're surviving. You haven't given up. If you haven't given up and gone home, you're still in the race. Right? So be encouraged. 
The grace of God is what empowers and enables you to carry on and not give up. We need the grace of God to do that. And so he says, I press on toward the goal mark. And by the way, when we were in uh, Athens uh, at the Bible College where I, I, I teach, I would like, love to get back there. They closed during COVID. But we went down the road to, of course, the coffee shop. The kingdom of God doesn't move ahead without good coffee. And uh, in between classes or at the end of the day or something, we went off to the coffee shop. And right there, there's a four-lane road. And right in the middle of the median of the four-lane road, there's a, a statue right there of a runner. Just exactly like Paul was saying, stretch forward like that. And I looked at the sign, and the sign said, it's 13.1 miles to the right to, to the Acropolis, and it's 13.1 miles to the left to the Plains of Marathon. And that was the exact middle point. Well, that runner, his name was Pheidippides, was commissioned to run from Marathon to the Acropolis to tell the people of Athens that we've won the battle and their civilization was saved. And so there it was right in front of the coffee shop, kind of a little bit out of place in the middle of four lanes, but it was exactly where that runner would have run uh, 2,000, almost two and a half thousand years ago. And that's the race that God has called us. And that's the race that God, that course was developed into the Olympic race, which was the marathon, and in subsequent years, and still in the days of the Apostle Paul, and still today, and that's the race that, that this whole passage, that's the picture this whole passage is built about. And here it culminates. I press on toward the goal marker, toward the prize for which God calls me up in Christ Jesus. So he's, he uses this word again, I press on, so he's still talking about running, he's pursuing, he's a work in progress, he's, he's running, he's not looking back, he's looking forward. Uh, Every one of us on this planet, whether they're a Christian or not, is in the middle of a race. The outcome of the race will bring life to some and death to others. But we're all in a race. The race is not a sprint. It is a marathon. But like any other race, it has a definite finishing point. And Paul says, it's the goal marker. He talks about the goal marker. What was the goal marker? The goal marker was a very tall post. When you run marathons today... Um, in cities they have, you know, it all the route all marked out and uh, nobody, uh, you know, goes off route or gets lost. But in those days, people got lost. And so they put a goal marker up at the end, a very tall post. You could see that's where you're headed to. If you ran in any other direction, and they probably had some along the way too, if you ran in any other direction, you're going to lose the race. So that, that goal marker was there at the end, to give energy and incentive to the tired runners because they saw the end in sight. And so it's when things get difficult, like when I had to put the garbage out that day and I was so discouraged, it's when things get difficult, we need to keep the goal marker in mind. There's a goal marker there. And Jesus is standing at the end of our race calling us on. And when things are tough, it's not a question of charisma or personality or pizzazz or some church that's got all the bells and whistles. It is just the grace of God that we need in our lives. Wise 
man said to me once that if necessary, God will take 50 years of somebody's life to prepare him for the last few. We hate that, don't we? I want it now. I want it when I'm 18 or 20 or 22. And that's what wrecks so much Christian leadership, ambition, and people that, you know, sometimes do become successful, but they haven't got the character. And it all, it's crash and burn. But God, God wants to take years and years of discipleship and development. And I think toward the end of our life, it should be the richest. And as our life goes on, we should accumulate something that we have to offer to the world around us. There are times when the going gets tough, times when we're tempted to stop running and drop out of the race. But we've got to keep going, even if you can only put one foot ahead of another, just keep moving forward. And here's this last phrase we come to. The goal marker, we press on toward the goal marker, toward the prize for which God calls me up in Christ Jesus. We think he's talking about meeting the Lord in his eternal kingdom, and that's true, but actually that that's, he's following through on the picture of the, of the Olympic race, the marathon race, because, because when you got to the goal marker and when the race was won, the judges were seated on a high platform so that they could accurately view whoever was crossing the finish line first. And when the race was won, the, some kind of herald or somebody with a loud voice shouted forth the name of the winner and called upon them to come up to where the judges were set. That's what he is talking about, the prize for which God calls us up. And the runner would go up and up and up and up and up, and then all the assembled people would cheer him, because they were all men in those days, but all cheer him. Uh, his name would be called out because he had won the race, and the laurel would be placed on his head. And that's the picture. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? But Paul says here, actually, God is the judge. The Christian is the winning athlete who is called up into the presence of God. When we enter the presence of God, some kind of her heavenly herald will call forth our name and announce that we've won the race. That's a wonderful picture, I think. This thought of the race was never very far from Paul's mind. A year before he wrote this letter to the Philippians, he told the Corinthians, run the race in such a way that you win it. And then two years or so after Philippians, facing the certainty of imprisonment, he told the Ephesian elders, the only desire I have is to finish the race. And a number of years further, near the very end of his life, he wrote to his spiritual son Timothy, he says, I finished the race. He knew the end was nigh. So what about you and me today? Are we in the race? We dropped out? Are we sitting on the roadside? Or are we still in the race? And if we're in the race, we're in the race to win. Because winning is entering the presence of God and having our name called out. If you're in the race, don't think about stopping. 
Even if you feel the only energy you've got is to move forward, that's enough. At least you're not moving backward. And one day, like Paul, you'll cross the finish line. And on that day, you too will be summoned before the judge. Your name will be called out. And you'll receive the only prize that's worth living and dying for. God, give us the grace and power that we need to each of us to run the, the race and win. I hope that's an encouragement to you this morning. Let me just take a moment to pray. Then I'll hand it over to Josh. Lord, we're so grateful this morning for your amazing grace. Not, not a one of us in this room deserved to be saved. Not a one of us deserved to know you personally. And yet you've rescued us like you rescued Paul. You've arrested us like you arrested him, even if it wasn't quite as dramatic an experience as he had. And you've shown yourself, revealed yourself to us. You've entered into relationship with us. We know you, not just mentally, but experientially. And thank you that for every one of us represented here this morning, no matter where we're at in our race, whether we're we're in an energy spurt, we're running quickly, whether we're plodding along, whether we're gasping for breath and barely moving, Lord, you're with us in the race. And I pray, Father, for encouragement for each and every single one of us this morning, that you'd energize and empower us afresh to run this race and to win. In Jesus' name, amen.